Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Lord God, thank you so much for all that you've said to our hearts through the book of John. And as we come to this final lesson today, we pray that, Holy Spirit, you would continue to speak, that this word would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which it was sent to the glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. As we begin looking at John chapter 20, we know that the work done to prepare Christ for burial on the Friday had been very hasty. And so several women went to the tomb just before dawn on the Sunday morning to do more. Now, although other women were with her, John only focuses on Mary Magdalene. Verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. The Sabbath is over, and as the dawn is beginning to streak the sky, Mary hurries to the tomb. But notice how she refers to the fact that other women were with her, because in verse 2, she says to uh, Peter and John, we don't know where they have put him. Even in the gloom, Mary can see that the huge stone has been moved from the entrance. And when she sees that the tomb is empty, Mary immediately presumes that the authorities had taken Jesus' body away. In response to the news, Peter and John run to the tomb. Look at verse 3. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. John got there first, but he was hesitant to go in. But of course, nothing stops impulsive Peter. When John finally went into the tomb, we're told that he saw and believed, meaning that he saw that it was empty and he believed what Mary had said, that the body was indeed gone. Verse 9 there clearly states that the disciples at that point still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had 
to rise from the dead. Not only did the Old Testament point to the fact that the Messiah would rise from the dead, that ritual on the Day of Atonement required that the high priest return to the people as proof that the blood he offered as payment for their sin was sufficient to reconcile them to God. So too with our high priest Jesus Christ. He had to come back to us to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable. But Peter and John do not understand any of that yet, and so they left. But Mary, who had returned to the tomb with them, stayed on. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. There's something significant in what Mary sees. Remember what happened on the Day of Atonement under the Old Covenant? Remember that everything there was fulfilled in Christ's death? At that celebration, the blood of the sacrifice was carried into the Holy of Holies in the temple, and there it was sprinkled on the mercy seat or the flat atonement cover of the Ark of the Covenant. That solid gold cover was decorated with angels, one on either side. And here, John's picture of what Mary saw in the tomb would have brought that image to his Jewish readers' minds. Because here, you have the flat stone and one angel, one on either side, and the bloodied linens in between. Although these angels speak to Mary, she is so grief-stricken, she still does not even wonder who they are. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. I really identify with Mary because I think often when we find ourselves in difficult situations, Jesus can be very close to us and yet we do not recognize that it is he who speaks to us. He asks Mary two questions and they're important ones. Why are you crying and who are you looking for? Now, she doesn't really answer either of the questions, but it's important we think about what he asks. In our own lives, there are times when we are grief stricken over some loss or some terrible disappointment. When that happens, we need to ask ourselves, why are we weeping? Are we only seeking that? which was lost or are we seeking Jesus the risen Lord even in that circumstance Jesus wants us to turn away from the emptiness of our tomb and turn toward him now I've recently lost my husband but our tomb experience may not involve a physical death it could be any number of things it could be the end of a relationship a lost job a failed exam, we may have had to let go of some dream for ourselves or for another. 
We find ourselves grieving what might have been. Everything feels empty and hopeless. But Jesus wants us to confront the reason for our grief. And he also wants to assure us that we are not alone, for he is there. He wants us to be able to turn away from the tomb, that thing we have lost, and turn to him, knowing that we still have a future and a hope with him. Very softly, Jesus is calling our name. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. As she recognized his voice, she turned toward him. The question is, will you? Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I think Jesus tells her that she's not to hold on to him because we so often want to cling tightly to that which is familiar. We want things to stay the way that they were. We don't want change, and I think that might have been the case for her also. Things were going to be very different for Mary, and Jesus has new and unexpected opportunities for her and he begins by immediately sending her to the others with the good news of his resurrection. Now let me just remind you that in those days everyone had a very poor opinion of women. If the disciples had stolen the body and lied about Christ being alive they would never ever have chosen a woman to bring the good news because a woman's testimony would have been quickly discounted. They would have chosen some important man in the community to be the one to bring the good news. Maybe Nicodemus or Peter or Joseph of Arimathea. The fact that Jesus picked a woman is actually one of the proofs that this story is not one that the disciples made up. Verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Just as Jesus promised, their mourning turned to joy. That same Sunday, the disciples assembled in the evening behind doors that were locked tight because they feared the Jewish religious leaders. But even locked doors were not able to prevent Jesus from entering the room. He immediately spoke peace to their hearts and then showed them his hands and his side so that they might believe that it really was him raised from the dead. Verse 21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sin, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. 
Jesus called them to go out with the good news and he equipped them with the Holy Spirit, giving them the authority to proclaim the fact that forgiveness of sin is now available through the blood of Christ. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Though there are many people there that evening, Thomas was absent. Now, remember that when Jesus went to Lazarus, Thomas was the one who was willing to go with Jesus, even if it meant death. So we shouldn't speak too harshly about him for doubting. After all, honestly, if we were in his place, we would probably have said the exact same thing that he did. Of course, this is a very good reminder never to miss a church meeting because you never know what the Lord might do when he shows up. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. This is so similar to the first time that he appeared to the disciples. Without anyone telling him, Jesus knows Thomas's heart, but he's willing to show Thomas the same proofs that he had shown others. What grace and kindness. Jesus lets Thomas touch him. And as a result, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Notice Thomas calls him my Lord and my God, and Jesus accepts that statement. Let me tell you, no holy man or good teacher would have ever allowed that to be said unless it was true. This proves that Jesus is indeed God, as we've seen throughout this gospel account. Perhaps we feel that the apostles were more blessed than us because they were with Jesus physically. But here, according to Jesus in verse 29, we are actually more blessed than they, for we have believed in Christ based on the word of God alone. Verse 30, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's main purpose for writing is so that we will believe that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, because if we entrust ourselves to him, we will have life in his name. Now, though we might think that this is really a good place for John to end, there's still something more that needs to be said. As chapter 21 opens, we see the disciples have gone back to Galilee. 
Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, We'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So seven of the disciples are here together. John and his brother James are the sons of Zebedee. And so again, John is going to be an eyewitness to all that happens as well. Despite having seen Jesus since his resurrection, at Peter's suggestion, these men have gone back to doing what they knew. They're no longer fishers of men. They have now gone back to fishing for fish. I want you to notice the fact, though, that that night they caught nothing. Verse 4. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. They had tried all night on their own without success. Yet look at the difference when they followed the command of Christ Jesus. John included this event because it's about a lot more than just fishing. Like Peter and these disciples, we are to be fishers of men. But in order to do that effectively, we need to obey Christ's commands. There is a multitude of fish out there, but we need to seek Christ's direction if we're to bring them in. John suddenly realizes that this is the Lord standing on the shore. Verse 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. So John is the first to recognize Christ, but Peter is the first to act, as always. He had removed his outer garment in order to work, but now he quickly puts it on and jumps overboard. Now, you might think that very strange, but I think it really indicates that Peter wanted to be ready for anything. Fortunately for him, they were not far from shore. Verse 11 when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. There really is so much in this. Everything that happened that morning was very similar to when the disciples were first called by Christ to follow him. When Jesus first called them to be fishers of men, they'd also been fishing all night without success. 
That time, when they obeyed what he told them to do, they also caught a lot of fish, but their nets began to tear. I love the fact that this time they actually counted the fish because it helps us to understand how remarkable it was that the net didn't break. Perhaps Jesus is using this to illustrate the change in them over the years that they've been with him. Seeing as this is so much like when Peter first agreed to follow Christ, you have to wonder what he's thinking right now. This breakfast with Jesus is about much more than just a successful fishing trip or a fellowship meal. When Peter had denied Christ at the high priest's house, Peter had been warming himself by a fire of coals, much like this. And on this cold morning, Jesus has drawn Peter once more to a fire for the special purpose of getting Peter to remember that night that he'd failed Jesus so badly. We're told in verse 15, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Jesus calls Peter by his old name, Simon, when he speaks to him, and he asks him if he loves him more than these. Jesus uses the word in Greek here for the highest form of love, He is speaking of the agape love that is associated with God himself. Asking if Peter has agape love for him, Jesus then asks if Peter loves him more than all the others. And Peter answers that yes, he does. But what's very important for us to understand is that each time Peter answers Jesus, he uses a lesser word for love than Christ did. Peter's love is different to the kind of love Jesus asked him about. Jesus asks Peter if he loves him with God's kind of love. But each time Peter replies, he answers saying that he loves Jesus with phileo love. It's as if he says, yes, Lord, you know I have brotherly affection for you. I think before his denial on the night of Christ's arrest, Peter might boldly have used the same word for love that Jesus did. But Peter is humble now and he knows his limitations. Matching each denial of Christ, Jesus gives Peter a threefold commission, saying, feed my lambs. But notice, he says, my lambs, the flock belongs to Jesus. Verse 16, for a second time, again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. You see, both lambs and mature sheep need to be fed. Both those who are new to Christ and those who are more mature need to be cared for as well. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. 
it's significant here in John 21 that Jesus never asked Peter if he loved the sheep. He only ever asked Peter if he loved him. You see, sometimes we think that church leadership falls to those who love the sheep. No, to be a leader in the church, you really need to love the shepherd for nothing else will get you through. Take care of his flock out of love for Christ, even more than your own love for them. The final thing I want to point out here, though, is that when Jesus asked Peter for the first time, do you love me? Jesus changed his word for love from agape to the love that Peter used, phileo. Amazingly, Christ seems to meet Peter where he is. Verse 18. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself yourself, and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Jesus knows what lies ahead for Peter and how he will be imprisoned and eventually put to death. But his only command is that Peter continue to follow him. Even at this point, Peter is far from perfect though. As he and Jesus walked together on the shore of the lake, John had started to walk behind them. Verse 20. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. See, already Peter seems to be worried about how the Lord is going to use someone else. But Peter is told that he should not be concerned for such things. His only focus should be on following Jesus. And it's the same for you and me as well. Don't worry about how God will use others. You and I must keep our eyes on Christ alone. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have enough room for the books that could be written. Jesus did much, much more than John could ever write down. And truth be told, Jesus is still doing marvelous things today. My encouragement to each of you is if you want Jesus to use you, all you need do is follow him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for what you've said to our hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be used by you for the extension of your kingdom. 
Lord, we know that it is not a love that of the sheep that drives us, but rather it is a love of the shepherd. So Lord, I pray that you would help us keep our eyes firmly on Christ alone and that we would walk in obedience to him, obeying his commands, doing what he tells us and thereby bringing in a large haul of fish for the kingdom, a large group of those who will be saved because of Christ's name. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.